Thanks for joining us for Access Utah Today. I'm Tom Williams. We recently received an email from a listener as follows. I wanted to suggest a potential topic to explore in an upcoming show. I came across an article in the Ogden Standard Examiner the other day about a man getting arrested for an unpaid ambulance bill. He died while in jail. I can't believe we're still arresting people for not being able to pay things like medical bills. I'm curious how prevalent this practice is and how this type of arrest affects otherwise law-abiding citizens. Is reform needed? Thank you for that email. And uh, that got us thinking, have we returned to the concept of debtor's prison? We're going to talk about that today on the program. And we're joined by Eli Hager, who is a staff writer for the Marshall Project, where he recently compiled a debtor's, uh, uh, an article called Debtor's Prisons, Then and Now, FAQ. His work has appeared in the Washington Post and elsewhere. He also solicits, collects, and edits journalism by incarcerated writers for the Marshall Project's Life Inside feature. He's a graduate of University of Michigan and Columbia University. Eli Hager, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, Dr. Karen Martin uh, joins us. She is uh, Assistant Professor of Public Management at uh, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, where she's also Faculty Director of the, uh, is it Tow or Tau Policy Advocacy Fellowship? And she's a visiting professor. Tau, yes. okay. And visiting professor of the, uh, at the Goldman School of Public Policy at University of California in Berkeley for uh, this year. Uh, Karen Martin, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. And we're joined also by Beth Colgan. Uh, Dr. Colgan is Assistant Professor of Law at UCLA School of Law. Her primary research and teaching interests are in criminal law and procedure and juvenile justice. And prior to uh, joining the law school, she was a Thomas C. Gray Fellow and lecturer in law at Stanford Law School. Beth Colgan, welcome. Thank you. Uh, this is a very interesting, important topic, of course. Uh, let me return to this article or, or give you a bit of this article from the Ogden Standard Examiner, this, uh, this tragic uh, incident uh, that happened just uh, in January of this year. Uh, so we're talking about a 45-year-old Bear River City man in, uh, in Box Elder County in Utah. On Christmas Eve 2013, Rex Iverson incurred an ambulance bill. Tremont and City won a justice court small claims judgment against him in September 2014, compelled him to pay the city $2,376. He never paid the bill and, according to the article, ignored repeated court orders to appear. That led to a county sheriff's deputy serving a $350 bench warrant issued by the justice court on December 29th of last year, and he was arrested on the morning of uh, Saturday, January 23rd of this year. Iverson died in a box elder jail, county jail holding cell Early that afternoon, jailers were elsewhere in the jail preparing for the booking process. Uh, still don't know what the cause of death uh, was. But this is the article that our listener uh, referred to. Let me turn first to Eli Hager. Your FAQ, debtors' prisons then and now. Debtors' prison, that's a loaded word. Um, and uh, uh, common in England um, and in colonial America, but uh, we thought we'd gotten rid of that concept. I guess we have officially... But you're saying uh, de facto we're back to it. Uh, correct, right. Uh, debtor's imprisonment was uh, outlawed under federal law in 1833, I believe, and then there were three Supreme Court decisions in the 1970s and 80s, which um, you know reaffirmed that uh, unconstitutionality of imprisoning people purely for the reason of not being able to pay debt. Um, but we've kind of uh, subtly and quietly returned to uh, you know, imprisoning people for not being able to play, pay debts, whether those are private debts like a ambulance bill or uh, a criminal justice debts that they've accrued while while being involved in the justice system, like fines and court fees and things like that. 
This is the return to what you could call, well, imprisonment for debt, debtor's prisons, the term. Uh, tell us how this has crept back in. Well, to a certain extent, I think it might have uh, been there all along, but I think uh, one of the things that's happened more recently is that with the fiscal crisis uh, of, of the 2000s, um, a lot of states were, were asking their court systems to be fiscally self-sufficient, um, so, so courts had to uh, make the money that they were spending um, through fines and fees and things like that. Um, and so what you saw was this kind of new brand of offender-funded justice by which uh, people uh, people who are involved in the justice system have to pay themselves for the costs of the justice system uh, through fines and fees and things like that. So that, that's one of the things we've seen more recently um, uh, that, that's kind of allowed debtors' imprisonment to creep back in. In your article, uh, you make a connection to, uh, the, and, and you quote some people saying that we've become more comfortable as a society with incarceration. True. Over yes, time. I think uh, beginning with the, the war on drugs and the war on crime, there's kind of a normalization of incarceration, um, you know, by which uh, lesser and lesser crimes were worthy of incarceration. I mean, if you can, if you can uh, incarcerate somebody for possessing a small amount of marijuana, then why can't you um, incarcerate somebody for not paying a debt? Um, and so what you saw in the 80s and 90s was an uh, increasing number of um statutes allowing incarceration for, for, for owing debt, and I think Dr. Martin would know a little bit more about mm-hmm. those. Uh, yeah, there, I guess there's a couple of kinds. There's civil, and then there's associated with with, um, with, uh, with criminal. And uh, Karen Martin, I think you are. You've, you're involved in a study examining the use of uh, CJFOs, which is criminal justice financial obligations, which I learned reading yes. for this. For this, yeah, uh, I think the world of CJFOs is quite complex, and it encompasses everything, including fines, which a judge issues as a part of the sentence, and then there's restitution, which is there's an identifiable victim, then you pay the victim back. The problem with restitution is that in this country, we often people end up paying it to some kind of anonymous, generic state funds, but even if there isn't necessarily a victim, you're still paying to a fund. Um, and then there's things like fees and surcharges, and that's where it gets very tricky and where people accrue a lot of debt because a base fine of like $100 can immediately become several hundred dollars or even $1,000, depending on where you are. Uh, can you give me an example or, you know, it's to, uh, I guess, personalize the issue? Can you give me a, a story, perhaps? Well, I can tell you, actually going back to the, your original story, it happens quite a, quite too often that people end up dead because of criminal justice debt. So there's the story of Joyce Cornell, who was convicted of stealing $20 worth of beer and candy from some stores in South Carolina. She was separate from this. She was in the hospital for stomach flu. And the authorities discovered that she had a bench warrant. They went to the hospital, took her out of the hospital, and put her in jail because she had stopped making payments towards a $1,000 fine from the 2011 arrest. Um, and then she died in jail because they, she was completely dehydrated. She was vomiting and that she was found dead in her, herself. And so the questions we need to ask ourselves are about proportionality. So is it really worth it to us to collect $20, $1,000 to put people's life, lives at risk by exposing them to the trauma and you know, death that they can occur in jail. Uh, Beth Colgan, what uh, what has your research uh, shown on on this? I guess that my particular question to you is: How prevalent is this incarceration for debt? 
Sure. The the use of, of uh, the kinds of surcharges and fees that uh, Dr. Martin was speaking about um, is, is quite prevalent across the country, although, of course, it, it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, the extent to which these kinds of things are used. But they're used in juvenile courts uh, as our fines and restitution, uh, felony courts, traffic courts, misdemeanor courts. And as Eli mentioned, this has become part of the way in which we have funded criminal justice in the United States. And I think what we're seeing in the example that you started with of, of Mr. Iverson and being placed in jail over an unpaid ambulance bill is the, the tentacles of this are starting to creep onto the civil side, where uh, an unpaid civil bill, unrelated to, it sounds like a criminal conviction, um, we're still uh, seeing places starting to use the contempt process in courts to incarcerate people for those debts as well. So unfortunately, it is quite prevalent, and we've seen a lot of attention beginning to be paid to this because of, of places like Ferguson, Missouri, where um, the municipal court was funded funded quite um, extensively on the back of these kinds of fees and fines. Uh, but it's not unique to that. We're, we we do unfortunately see this nationwide. And uh, as I understand it, the civil arm of this, you're not uh, ordered to appear in court because of the debt. You're ordered to appear, or or the charge is failure to appear, right? It's a, it's contempt of court. Well, it could come um, come up in a number of ways. For instance, a private company could go into court and seek a contempt order for your failure to pay uh, or for your failure to appear. Uh, and depending on... Um, you know, there are different rules for whether it's civil contempt or criminal contempt that are probably too complex to get into, but um, either of those things could trigger a process in which ultimately you're incarcerated, although courts do have obligations to provide, um, to provide due process and at times counsel and, um, and even criminal process if someone is going to be incarcerated. The extent to which that's happening, we're not sure. Uh, back to Eli Hager, you uh, in your article... You begin it with an experience of, of, of a woman named Robin Sanders. I wonder if you could tell us that story. Uh, sure. If I remember correctly, she was driving home, and and she was uh, pulled over. Um, she thought she would just get a ticket uh, for speeding or for a broken muffler or something like that. Um, but instead, she was arrested and, and taken to jail because she owed money. Um, it was an unpaid medical bill and a collection the agency had filed a lawsuit against her. Um, so this is in the category of the kind of civil process by which people are starting to end up in jail. Um, they have private uh, private debts, not public debts, um, you know, credit card debt, unpaid medical bills, car payments, payday loans. Um, a, lot, a lot of these loans that low-income people kind of rely on for their, for their weekly um, uh, finances. Um, and they, they end up owing a large amount of interest, and a, and a collection company takes them to court, and maybe they don't appear, and then they get they get uh, an arrest warrant for failing to appear or for contempt of court, um, and, and they, they end up in, in jail. Um, and a lot of times they don't have a, a, a counsel in these cases, uh, since there's no there's technically no right to counsel in civil cases, even though they're going to be facing criminal consequences like, like going to jail. Uh, Karen Martin, uh, that's an important piece of this, isn't it? Um, it it's it, essentially it's being uh, criminalized, you could say, but uh, but without uh, the right to counsel, without some of the yeah, constitutional protections. A, it's a massively important piece of this. I think it goes back to the fact that people are probably aware of the issue of mass 
incarceration, but this mass incarceration comes from mass criminalization. And what we're seeing through these criminal justice financial obligations is that, as Dr. Colton pointed out, the, the boundary between civil and criminal is becoming increasingly blurred. And so you can end up in jail for something like littering or loitering or being in a park after dark through not paying your fines and fees. And it is critically important to realize that people are not represented, have no legal counsel, often don't know their rights, and because courts are understaffed and underfunded usually, it's a very, very quick process. So people often are mystified about what's happening to them. You know, it's two minutes in front of the judge. The judge decides you owe a certain amount, you can't pay it, you're going to jail, and that's it. And people don't have any, they don't know what their recourse is. Uh, Beth Colgan, I wonder what what are the rules? Because I'm reading some examples of people who say they didn't get notification. You have to be notified, don't you? Well, yes. I mean, in, in our court system, one of the, the, the values of our court system is you're entitled to due process, which means notice and opportunity to be heard. Now, unfortunately, uh, beyond that sort of simplified statement about um, what is required, there are a lot of um, gray areas. So, for example, um, as Eli mentioned at, at the top of the hour, there are cases in the 70s, 80s in which the Supreme Court announced that you couldn't automatically convert someone's debt into incarceration. This was in the context of um, criminal debt. couldn't be automatically converted into incarceration um, absent a hearing to determine whether the failure to pay was willful or was due to poverty. Uh, now, once that is considered by the court, the, 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 uh, the trial court, the Supreme Court did leave open the possibility of incarceration, but only if there's no other means by which uh, the, the, um, the court could actually punish for the offense and, and obtain the deterrent effect. And so some of the things that the Supreme Court noted is you might um, offer a reasonable payment plan or a reduction in the amount of the debt or community service in lieu of the debt. Um, and it, what we're seeing is that in many jurisdictions, those kinds of alternative sanctions are not being employed um, and that there aren't really hearings happening to determine whether the debt was is not being paid willfully or not. Mm-hmm. The other complicating factor though is the right to counsel is really grossly under theorized in this area and it's not entirely clear what when and how counsel attaches so uh, we do have uh, the right to counsel in the United States in felony cases or in any other case where incarceration is imposed but the court has yet to answer the question of whether that in- includes cases like what we're seeing here, where the initial penalty imposed is a fine rather than incarceration, because we don't have a right to counsel if it's just a fine. Um, but, but then incarceration is essentially guaranteed because the fine is so high that there is uh, the, the incarceration is most likely to occur. And so that's an open question in the court as to whether or not there's a right to counsel in cases like that. There's a separate doctrine that says there, is, there may be a right to counsel under the Due Process Clause if the debt is accrued to the state and there isn't sufficient notice or opportunity to be heard and the state is represented by a prosecutor. But again, the court has only alluded to that right and has not yet said that it exists. Uh, Beth Coleman, would yes, go ahead. Go ahead, yes. So the yeah, so the um, the court did say that willfulness. You have to demonstrate that you are willfully not not paying. But in practice, that means that a judge. You know, I have seen seen judges do this and heard people. I'm interviewing people with debt, and they 
told me stories like this, where the judge will look at them and say, oh, well, you have a manicure. Why aren't you paying your fine? You're going to jail. Or where'd you get those nice tennis shoes? You can't pay it for your fine. You're, that's a willful non-payment. You're going to jail. Or, you know, your hair is done or you have a nice coat on or whatever it is. The judge will just look at the person, decide if you have a tattoo, you have to spend money on that, who knows when. But that means that you're willfully not paying your fine. And so it's really important to remember that judges have enormous discretion in this regard. And it is really having severe consequences for people. Well, yeah, I was just going to follow up with that. So let me follow up with with you, uh, Karen Martin, uh, on on this. That that is a key question, isn't it? Uh, willfulness, and as you said, the judge has broad discretion uh, on that. I think a lot of people could understand uh, creditors have a right to, you know, have a little bit of teeth in, in trying to get a hold of their money, uh, their their money back. Uh, we also understand that some people are just too poor to pay. That's apparently was the case of Mr. Iverson uh, here in Utah. Um, then it comes down to, you know, are you willing to do a payment plan? Are you, you know, it comes down to willfulness, doesn't it? Well, I think it's really important to remember at its base that we are talking about something that's supposed to be proportionately punitive. So if you have some type of infraction that is worth $100, what the issue is, is because of all these fees and surcharges, it becomes many multiples of that. $410 in Kern County, thousands of dollars. New Jersey has a set of surcharges that range, you know, that triple or double or, you know, quintuple the original base charge. So we're not discussing a person kind of enjoying getting some good or service or product that they, you know, willfully entered into debt to get, right? So we're talking about something that's meant to punish, but it's supposed to be proportional. You do something wrong, the state has the right to want to curb that behavior, so here's a punishment. $100 fine is impossible for some people to pay, but many people will find that, you know, moderate and perhaps you can work it off through community service or over time. The issue is that we're now talking about hundreds of dollars and thousands of dollars for people who are impoverished and many of whom are indigent. And so the discussion shouldn't just be about whether or not you're willfully not paying something. The discussion should be about whether that amount of fine is justified in the first place. Let's take a break. When we come back, more on this very interesting, important topic. Have we returned to uh, de facto debtors' prisons? Um, and uh, is reform needed? Um, and uh, what do you think on this topic? We're opening the phone lines and email. You can email us uh, to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Our number, uh, phone number toll-free is 1-800-826-1495. Uh, love to know what you think. Maybe you've had a personal experience with this. Uh, perhaps you are a creditor. Love to hear your uh, perspective on this and uh, trying to collect on your on your debt. Um, and uh, when we come back, I'll begin with Eli Hager, and I, I want to have him re- and all of our guests respond to this. This is from the Ogden Standard Examiner article that our listener pointed us to. Uh, this is Box Elder County Chief Deputy Sheriff Dale Ward. He said, we go to great lengths to never arrest anybody on these warrants, but we make every effort to resolve the issues without making an arrest on a civil bench warrant. And then he goes on to say, the reason we do that is we don't want to run a debtor's prison. There's no reason for someone to be rotting in jail on a bad debt. Uh, We'll talk more about this following the break. This is Science by the Slice. Adventurous diners of pufferfish know that the food's intoxicating tingle comes from tetrodotoxin, a potent neurotoxin that's deadly beyond small doses. North American garter snakes have evolved an amazing resistance to the lethal substance, which is found in one of their favorite meals, the Californian newt. 
USU biologist Butch Brody and his students are investigating the genetic basis for this example of coevolution. They're exploring the genetic basis of adaptation and the molecular processes that lead to evolutionary changes. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. We recently received an email from a listener suggesting uh, an episode of the program that uh, is happening right now. Uh, this uh, listener uh, referred us to an article in the Ogden Standard Examiner, a tragic case of a gentleman, 45 years old, Rex Iverson, uh, who lived in Bear River City uh, in Box Elder County in Utah. And uh, he had a judgment uh, against him for uh, some $2,300, an ambulance bill. Uh, the uh, city, Tremont City, uh, got a, a judgment against him. He didn't pay the bill, ignored repeated court orders to appear, and he was arrested on a $350 bench warrant. He unfortunately died in, uh, in jail in January of this year. That highlights an uh, important uh, issue. Uh, have we returned to de facto debtors' prisons? And uh, we're discussing this on the program today with Eli Hager, staff writer for The Marshall Project, Karen Martin, assistant professor of public management at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and Beth Colgan, assistant professor of law at UCLA School of Law. So let me repeat this uh, quote from the deputy sheriff here in the Iverson case. And this gets us into, uh, into some other issues here. Uh, this is uh, Box Elder County Chief Deputy Sheriff Dale Ward. He said in the Iverson case, responding to the Iverson case, they go to great lengths to never arrest anybody on these warrants, talking about the, the civil uh, judgments. The reason we do that is we don't want to run a debtor's prison. There's no reason for someone to be rotting in jail and bad debt. He's saying that at least his office tries very hard to, to not to do this. Uh, Eli Hager, but you're saying this is fairly prevalent, prevalent and, uh, and increasing. It is fairly prevalent, and I do think it depends in large part on on the particular jurisdiction. I mean, some uh, police departments and and district attorneys' offices uh, are are of that mind that it's it's not something that should be happening, and they try to avoid arresting people on those warrants. But there, I mean, there are other district attorneys' offices that really prioritize clearing out old warrants, um, and they'll even go so far as if somebody has a has an open bench warrant in another state, they'll go uh, they'll go extradite them back to the state to to uh, get them to face the law. So it, I think it really depends in large part on the local jurisdiction, uh, the extent to which they pursue these these warrants uh, that, that arise from debt. Let me uh, go to our first email of the uh, the program. This is a, an email from the Logan area uh, who says, with the story about the gentleman from Box Elder County, my understanding for civil debts is that if a person fails to show for a supplemental hearing at the court, then a bench warrant can be issued for their arrest if the person has been served personally with notice of the supplemental hearing. If the person had not been served personally, then a bench warrant cannot be issued. So that leads me to believe this gentleman failed to show up for the hearing he was notified about. If the debtor fails to attend the court hearing, then the creditor should have the right to proceed with the bench warrant being issued. If the person showed up to court hearing, then the bench warrant cannot be issued. Thus, the person does not have to worry about being hauled to jail for a civil debt. 
What rights does the creditor have if the debtor continues to ignore all attempts to collect the debt? All the gentleman had to do to avoid the bench warrant was to show up uh, to the hearing. Let me turn to my uh, my uh, guests uh, first for this question of the rules in this case. If Mr. Iverson had shown up for the hearings, then he wouldn't have had a bench warrant against him. Is that is that true, according to your understanding? I don't know who wants to handle this one. I'm not an attorney. I'll jump in. I'm I'm not an expert on Utah's um, procedural rules, so unfortunately, I can't answer that. But what I what I could add to the to the email um, question is that that of course uh, a court has a, a, a authority to enforce its own rules. It has an authority to um, uh, issue orders, and if those or and as long as those orders are lawful that um, it can hold people in contempt or issue an, a warrant if um, if someone fails to adhere to those orders. That said, one of the things I think that um, that Dr. Martin pointed to and that we, we should be thinking about is, is, is this really how we want to handle these circumstances? It creates all of these additional problems, like the problem that the chief deputy sheriff um, alluded to, that that this is contributing to jail overcrowding, Uh, this is contributing to uh, keeping people in cycles of, of debt and poverty. And also, it is contributing to a system that, that, as Eli mentioned, has normalized incarceration as the response to what may be uh, problems that could be handled better in other ways. And one of the, the concerns of, um, of what's going on here that's come out in, in uh, places around the country is that the, the message that's being sent to debtors is, if you have a debt and you cannot pay it, and you adhere to that court order and show up for your hearing, you'll be arrested at the hearing. Um, that, that may or may not actually be true, but that's the, 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 what's been um, articulated and what people have, have believed to be the case. And so actually one of the things that's happening here is in the attempt to ensure that people follow court orders, we've created a system where people think that if they do so, they will end up in jail. And that isn't working. Uh, partly rule in, in, yeah, go ahead. It's also costing the states quite a bit. I mean, if you think about the cost of putting somebody in jail, in New York it's more than $400 a day to put somebody in jail. So if you are bringing somebody to court because they haven't paid $100 or $500 or even $1,000, but they're going to be in jail for several days or a week, then the, if you're thinking about this, that you're trying to get revenue, which is a whole other part of this discussion we should probably have, then even that math does not work out. The incentives are off for both the individual and for the state. Eli Hager, I think you wanted to to chime in here. Right. The part I was going to add is that I, I don't know what the particular rules are in Utah, but we have seen cases in which um, the, the documents are served, but they're served at an address where the person no longer lives, which is very common when, when you have uh, poor people who move around a lot, um, or the documents are served um, to someone else in the, in the home and they never make it to the debtor. Um, someone of age answers the door, they get the papers, and it never makes it to the debtor. So there actually are a lot of cases, maybe not in Utah, but there are a lot of cases in which the person is, is technically served, but they don't actually know about the court date, and, and that's why they miss it, too. So that happens a lot. I want to follow up with the uh, another important point that our, our listener, our emailer, uh, made. And I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I want to reinforce this since they brought it up again. Uh, the simple question, what rights does the creditor have if the debtor continues to ignore all attempts to uh, collect the uh, debt? What about the creditor here? So again, this is an 
huge uh, jurisdiction, and unfortunately, I'm the, I'm not an expert in, in Utah law, but there are, are civil procedures to ob- obtain, you know, wage garnishment, um, it, at times forfeiture of property. It depends widely on the jurisdiction, though, and so the creditor do does have tools that they can use to seek enforcement of a of a um, a debt. I think what what the what we've been raising here is whether this should be one of those tools. Mm-hmm. And I guess it gets us back to this idea of willful. The judge has the the right to interpret that. If if, it, if the uh, debtor is making good faith attempt, or perhaps just doesn't have any money at all, versus just not willing to pay. Correct. Yes. Uh, here's another email. This comes in from Doobie. Um, doesn't don't service providers have insurance to cover them in cases such as Mr. Iverson's? Isn't uh, it's a shame that at the end of the day, a person's life is only worth the sum of their their debts? Let me start on the response on this with uh, with Mr. Hager. Well, I think uh, going back to the to the previous point and and to this email, I think one one thing that's important to remember is that when there's a bad transaction, it's it's kind of one of the fundamental tenets of of bankruptcy law actually that when there's a bad Transaction, uh, both the creditor and the debtor, you know, have some risk in in that transaction. So it, I think we're we're moving toward a system in which the debtor uh, takes all the risk in, in taking a loan. Uh, whereas I think I think the the concept is supposed to be that that the creditor takes a little bit of risk on when making a loan. So if if they truly can't collect from somebody, that that's a risk that they take. So I think that's an important uh, concept to remember that the risk goes both ways, and it shouldn't. It shouldn't all fall on the debtor who who might be too poor to mm-hmm. to pay that debt. Uh, and I wonder. Uh, let me turn to I guess in in turn uh, Karen Martin uh, the Doobie's point uh, that and I guess that Eli Hager just made that as well. Uh, you know, don't creditors have some protections? Yeah, creditors do have protections, and I would just add that you know they can also use things like tax rebate interception and liens and um, wage garnishment, as was mentioned. Um, and I do really want to make very crystal clear that this is not just private debt. It's not just people buying something or using a service and they can't afford it. We're also talking about a massive amount of public debt in the sense that a court has ordered the debt. It's uh, something that attaches to civil and criminal violations. So I just want to be very clear that we're not just talking about people like having a big credit card bill or taking an ambulance ride and owing a company. We're also talking about people owing the state money. And a lot of people who are ending up in these debtors' prisons owe the state. So that's, you know, that was the issue in Ferguson, Missouri, for example, is that the, you know, the branches of government were absolutely colluding with each other, saying we need to get more revenue how are we going to do it? We need to write more tickets and bring people into court, and then they will have to pay us money. And a lot of people are uh, experiencing tremendous amounts of debt because of conduct with the criminal justice system. Uh, Beth Colgan, uh, I wonder if you have a comment on this particular email. On the question of the insurance? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I would just um, echo what Eli said. I, I think that the... Um, you know, of course, some people do, some debt, some um, creditors do have insurance, others don't. Uh, it, it gets a little complicated, but certainly, you know, we um, we have other systems by which if a creditor, a civil creditor is owed some sort of debt, um, they can uh, be made whole. The, But I, I also think that, that um, Dr. Martin's point is really important here, which is the the 
bulk of what's going on is not this kind of civil debt issue. The bulk of what's happening is in the context of fines, fees, surcharges, and other penalties that are imposed by a court for oftentimes extremely low-level offenses, things like jaywalking or traffic tickets, um, and that people simply cannot pay. And so, and, as a, and those are things that are being used to fund public services, not just to fund the court system, but public services totally unrelated to the crime of conviction. So there are, you know, in different states, there are uh, pots of money that these fines and fees go into that might fund education, that might fund road improvement, that might fund research that's being conducted by the state, and on and on and on. And so what, what it were originally surcharges that were imposed as user fees um, to fund the court systems have now become a method of essentially regressive tax gen- generation. Uh, and that's that's a, a concern that is worth discussing. Let's uh, go to our first caller, who is Jennifer in Vernal. Jennifer, glad you called. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. I, I live on about $600 a month, which is not very much money, and um, partly because <clears throat> I'm dealing with um, someone who's 93 years old who needs help, and, uh, and because I have a daughter who... Um, well, she's basically schizophrenic, okay? And and these are things you don't get paid lots of money for, you know, taking care of. But I have been um, in jail in Vernal so many times I can't even tell you. I do have ADHD, too, so I do, I do space off court dates. But the pattern is when I was married to a doctor and could pay my bills and blah, 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 I didn't get arrested and, and I didn't uh, have you know, warrants and, and, and all these fines and everything else. Um, but now that I'm poor, um, I get arrested a lot more because the most recent thing was um, I finally got this little car for my 60th birthday, but I didn't have it completely registered. Okay, so I got two tickets for that. Then my brother-in-law died, and I didn't make the arrangements until a month later, by which time... They had tacked another $50 onto a fine, so the total is like a third of what I live on for months. So tonight I have an appointment with the bishop to get permission to work this fine off at the DI. But the idea is if you don't have money, it's almost like it's a crime to not have money because there are so many regulations and rules and things to try to keep up with them all it, it, if you don't have enough money to live on, it's not going to happen. And so you're going to end up in court. And um, very frustrating. But it, basically it boils down to this, this makes it so you're going to stay in poverty. You're not going to get out of poverty. You're going to keep you know, running up against these situations where you can't afford to pay, and then you're a criminal. So there you go. Uh, Jennifer, appreciate you sharing your experience. I hope, hope things go, go better for you. Yeah. Anyway, thanks. Thank you, Jennifer. Appreciate that. Uh, um, I don't know if anybody wants to jump in on this one. Well, I would just say that 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 experience definitely highlights the fact that we are living in in a world in which there is a two-tiered system of justice. If you have money, you have one experience. Usually it is an experience that it moves along at a somewhat reasonable pace with not very severe consequences besides having to pay some money. If you don't have money, you get stuck into this cycle of indebtedness, incarceration, 
um, fearing the police, not avoiding contact with the state, doing all types of things to avoid these really disproportionate outcomes simply because you don't have money. And it's a, it's a decision that we could make differently. We could decide that we're actually going to take into account ability to pay at every step of the way. So if somebody doesn't have money or somebody is indigent, we, at the initial decision, we can decide to adjust the fine accordingly. Uh, I don't know if either of my other guests want to comment on, on Jennifer. Yeah, uh, this is Beth Colgan. I would I would just say that the uh, just to echo what Dr. Martin said that you know this really is a situation where a person who is living on very low income um, and has what sounds like in, um, very important needs to uh, to supporting both um, in terms of elder care and supporting a daughter with mental illness um, that is clearly unable to pay or or appears to be unable to pay the amount of debt that's been imposed by the court. Now, that raises both policy questions about whether or not we should be um, considering ability to pay at the front end or doing something to make these kinds of penalties less regressive. But also it raises some constitutional concerns. The Eighth Amendment of the Constitution has what's called the excessive fines clause, which prohibits the imposition of excessive fines. And, and this is, seems to be something that was never considered in the caller's case. And so that's another question about, again, are our court systems um, actually providing the kinds of constitutional protections that, that should be afforded to people at the front end when the fine is imposed in the first instance? We uh, need to take another break. Let's do that right now. We're talking about uh, de facto debtors' prisons. That's what uh, some people are saying. We have, we've returned to debtors' prison, uh, incarceration, increasing incarceration for debt, a couple of strains of this, uh, civil debt, and then my guests are telling me that uh, much more of this is, uh, is criminal, uh, rising from criminal matters. Um, and uh, we're asking you if you've had an experience with this. Uh, perhaps you're a creditor. You want to get that viewpoint uh, out there. Uh, whatever your viewpoint is, we'd love to have you participate. And we have another about 10 minutes in the program. We're talking with Karen Martin uh, from John Jay uh, College of Criminal Justice, Beth Colgan, who is with the UCLA School of Law, and Eli Hager, staff writer for The Marshall Project. You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and you can call us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. We have a call and an email lined up. We'll get to those immediately following the break. It's a gathering place where conversations happen, plans are made, games are played, and the sense of smell is surpassed only by the sense of taste. It's The Kitchen. And public radio producers, The Kitchen Sisters, have found this to be the perfect place to collect and share stories heard on NPR and Utah Public Radio. They're coming to Logan in April. They're gathering at the table here in Logan, and you can listen to their stories live in the USU Performance Hall. Admission is free, but ticket reservations are required. For more information and to reserve your ticket, go to upr.org. Fox's hip-hop drama Empire is watched by millions but it really drew in one viewer. And I watched the pilot, and as I was walking out of the room, I was open. It was a spectacularly good pilot. And I called my agent and said, tell me what I need to do. I want to get this gig. And now she runs it. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. How Empire convinced its showrunner to stay in the TV business. 
next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, talking about uh, a new phenomenon, a fairly recent development. Um, some people are calling this a return to debtors' prisons, an increased rate of incarceration for debt, or at least incarceration incident to debt. This is both civil but uh, more uh, criminal justice financial obligations, as they're called, CJFOs. And we're talking with Eli Hager, staff writer for the Marshall Project, Karen Martin, assistant professor of public management at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and Beth Colgan, assistant professor of law at UCLA School of Law. And we have uh, about 10 minutes left in the program. We could fit your quick question uh, or comment by email or phone. And we go immediately to a, uh, a caller who's on the line. Uh, glad you glad you called us. Go ahead. Oh, hi. Hi. I'm calling just with a, with a quick comment about my experience with payday loans. I typically stay away from them just because they're so aggressive. But there was one time in my life that I knew I was getting a paycheck within a week or two, and I just didn't have the funds to buy a plane ticket. So I went ahead and used a payday loan to buy the plane ticket, knowing that I would be able to pay it off in a couple of weeks. And practically from the minute I hung up the phone, I started getting emails and phone calls and demands and reminders that I was going to have to pay this back. And for me, I kind of thought it was funny because I knew I was going to be able to pay it back. I've struggled off and on with finances as a single mom, but I thought about the people who wouldn't find it funny and who would be basically assaulted by this aggressive attempt to collect before the due date even rolled around, and I was pretty amazed. I paid mine off, but heaven help me if I hadn't. So pretty aggressive uh, collection attempts, even before the due date. Right. Yeah. Just calls and emails and, hey, by the way, you borrowed this money. Hey, by the way, you're going to owe this money. Hey, by the way, this isn't a gift, it's a loan, and you're going to have to pay it back. And if you don't, here's what's going to happen to you. It was, it was pretty interesting. I've, I've never done it before or since. And no matter how much I, I needed a payday loan, I figured something out or went without or did something else. But it was it was enough to scare me. So, the, yeah, so you're, you're, you were able to pay it, but that was your experience with the system. Uh, thanks for right. that. Appreciate that. Uh, let me start with Eli Hager. Any comment on that? Well, I, 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 that's obviously very common. The, the, the payday lender uh, actively enforcing uh, a debt or actively pursuing a debt is a little bit different from our justice system actively pursuing a debt and, and um, potentially putting people in prison for that. Um, but obviously that's kind of the first stage of the process. You have uh, creditors and, and people who are in, trying to enforce loans. Um, uh, going after you in a, in a very aggressive way, and that, and that's usually what ha- has people ending up in, in court. But that's that, that's kind of before the stage of, of the justice system getting involved mm-hmm. and, and the incarceration part. Let me pause right here. I'll, I'll pose this first to Eli Hager. Um, I, I'm just I'm channeling right now some of my, you might call them my conservative listeners, who are make clear here we're talking about the civil debt. Uh, who would might tell me that, uh, you know, we, we have that they're seeing an increasing prevalence of people who are just very comfortable not paying their debts and uh, seeing a culture here and then, and then maybe being comfortable at least on the civil side with some some teeth to the to the creditors um, attempts to collect um, well that that maybe is a perception but I 
you know, I in researching this issue and, and talking to a lot of low-income people who who face debt, it's it's not very comfortable. So I, I'm not sure where the, the comfortable uh, description is coming from. They they're constantly pursued, as as the caller just mentioned, by by the creditor in in ways that are scary and frightening. Um, and and then they're facing time in in court and in jail, and it's 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 not comfortable. And when when you do have money, you typically um, are able to pay these debts, and it's a comfortable process. But I, I don't know that it's very comfortable for for low income people. They mm-hmm. just they just don't have the ability to pay in a lot of cases, and and that's kind of uh, the start of things. Let's. Uh, we've reached that. Uh, yes. Go. If I can go just ahead. jump in for that yes. for a second. I, the other thing I push back on is the idea that this is a liberal versus conservative issue. Oh, um, this okay. Is, this is a big government problem as well, and I, I, I know a number of conservatives who are concerned about the idea of the government um, coming in uh, and, and incarcerating people for owing debt. And in fact, what we're seeing, and as, you, as was mentioned earlier, you know, sheriffs starting to come forward and saying this is not how we, what we should be doing is loading up our jails with people because they're poor. Um, you know, people who are, are traditionally considered to be conservative, even in criminal justice circles, are saying we need to take a deep breath here and think uh, more critically about how we're handling this. And and so I, I don't think it's it's accurate to to describe this as as conservative versus liberal. It's a question of how we want to be handling these particular issues. And I think there are, are people of good minds from both sides of the aisle who are working very hard to try to figure this out. Uh, uh, yeah, point taken. Uh, we've reached the point of the program. It sometimes happens. We have about five minutes left, and we have uh, three emails to, to, to get to. We'll crunch through this. I'll, I'll just get a response from from one of my guests uh, per, per uh, email. Uh, first comes from Isaac who says, I have personal experience with this subject. A while back, I was in between jobs and trying to get by on temp work in an area where public transportation is not an option. After receiving a ticket, I was unable to pay. Not only do they issue a warrant, uh, revoke your license, so what ends up happening, not only do you get arrested, you get an additional charge. Uh, it was a cycle that was very difficult to break, and I don't uh, think I could uh, have done it if not, I've not found a job that lifted me out of poverty. That's Isaac's experience. Somebody want to comment on, on Isaac's experience? Well, well, I would just point out that the uh, driver's license getting revoked thing is also very common, and, and you see that happen a lot. Somebody is uh, struggling to pay a debt. Uh, their driver's license get, gets revoked, and then they're and, and then they're in an area with no public transportation, and now they can't get to work, and it's even harder uh, to pay the debt. This, this happens a lot in um, child support cases. Actually, somebody's struggling to pay their child support bill. Um, the child support agency uh, revokes their driver's license, and now they can't even get to work. Um, so it, it, it's a little bit of a counterintuitive way of of enforcing a debt. Uh, uh, you would think. Here's a, we had a caller didn't want to go on the air, but uh, here's the gist of their call. Uh, they were wondering what uh, happens when debts are actually paid back after hearing in court cases, and the caller is wondering if penalties and interests acquired by the state mean the original lenders and service providers don't uh, even get paid back. Somebody want to jump in on that one? following actually the, the question yeah I, the, let me let me try to make it more clear um, so when the, de- the in, in this case apparently with the debt actually got paid back uh, after hearing court cases uh, he's wondering if penalties and interests acquired by the state in other words money going to the state on penalties and interest if that means that the original lenders creditors uh, don't get paid back 
Well, let me let me try to answer that. This is uh, again different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but most places have a sort of a, a schedule of priorities as who get pay, who's gets paid first, um, essentially. And the money that is um, is paid in is supposed to be distributed according to that schedule of priorities. Now, if there's a, a payment process that happens over a period of time, that may include things like collections costs and interests that go either to the state, depending on the structure, or the interest may go to the, the debtor. But it's so dependent on the, um, the system in any particular jurisdiction that it's, it's difficult to answer that in a vacuum. Okay. And uh, here's a final question by email. We just have a couple of minutes for this. Uh, this is from uh, Kristen. I'm curious if there is an uptick in the rate of people going to jail for unpaid health care costs. Second question, are reforms on the way beyond what's happening in Ferguson? Yeah, I would say that there is certainly an uptick um, in people go, well, I would say that health care costs are a major factor for people who do end up in jail for unpaid debt. I think it's probably early to have any reliable data to be able to save with any type of certainty about the number of people who are in jail from unpaid medical care. That's what I do know. I've spoken to people on some data that we do have. You, you, that is absolutely a factor as is child support, as is um, driver, you know, DMV debt. Um, and I think that, yes, uh, I'm optimistic that we are on the brink of reform. In fact, the Department of Justice just issued a letter to courts across the nation telling them, you know, basic guidelines about not putting people in jail for unpaid debt and to have more flexibility in terms of allowing people to have payment plans and uh, generally about trying to keep the punishment to be more proportional to the original offense. So I am optimistic that we that reform is possible and that it's about to start. We'll leave it there. We're out of time. Much more to be said, of course, as you saw by the volume of calls and emails. Uh, we can keep this con uh, discussion going at upraxcess at gmail.com, and you can uh, uh, find this program at upr.org and comment there as well. We've been talking with Eli Hager, staff writer for The Marshall Project. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Karen Martin is Assistant Professor of Public Management at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Beth Colgan has joined us. She's Assistant Professor of Law at UCLA School of Law. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and uh, coming up tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with a Utah writer, Emily Wing-Smith. Uh, it wasn't until a near-fatal accident that when she was 12 years old that she and her family discovered the truth of the problems she'd been having, a grapefruit-sized brain tumor at the base of her skull. Uh, it's a memoir. All better now. Emily Wing-Smith will join me. We hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about one of the most important artists of the 20th century and his journey to create one of the most significant works of land art in the world. Both the journey and the artwork happened right here in Utah. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Robert Smithson was one of the pioneers of the land art movement in the late 1960s and 70s, which redefined art making by using landscape as canvas. For Smithson, the journey to find a site for his artwork was as important as the site itself. Both determined the shape of the final artwork. In 1968, Smithson became interested in salt lakes, particularly the red color resulting from bacteria and algae growing in certain saline environments. When Smithson learned that water in Utah's Great Salt Lake was the color of tomato soup, 
he and his wife, fellow artist Nancy Holt, came to search for a place to build his next artwork. After much exploration, the couple visited Roselle Point in the northern arm of the lake. As we traveled, Smithson wrote, the valley spread into an uncanny immensity, unlike the other landscapes we had seen. The roads on the map became a net of dashes, while in the far distance the Salt Lake existed as an interrupted silver band. Besides the vast landscape, Smithson was drawn to dilapidated shacks and abandoned machinery in the area, remnants of many decades of oil drilling. Massive deposits of black basalt blanketed the landscape, pinkish water rippled to the shore, and networks of mud cracks laced across the salt flats. All spoke to Smithson as a gyrating space filled with spiraling movement. It was here that he decided to build his most iconic artwork, Spiral Jetty, which he completed in 1970. Today, people travel from around the world to experience Spiral Jetty. Once in Utah, the journey consists of long highways, twisting dirt roads, industrial spaces, historical sites, and the vast unknown. This journey is crucial to Smithson's artwork. It's not just about clambering on top of the jetty, through deep water, or over encrusted salt crystals, nor merely about the way the jetty focuses the sublime qualities of Great Salt Lake. The real magic of Spiral Jetty begins when you step into your car to embark on an adventure into the wilds of the West. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by the Utah Museum of Fine Arts. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. I listen to Bullseye for the moment when Jesse asks an artist an insightful question, and the artist goes, oh, huh. You can hear in the pause that he is reassessing his own work in light of the question that Jesse just asked. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, cult comedy icon Bob Odenkirk. Our conversation on the next Bullseye from NPR. Join us Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah and Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University.